Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journalist show. We do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. We have a lot to get through. Well, you do. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not not my fault that I watch movies. I know. <laughs> it's not your fault that you don't. I feel like people are more inclined to say that it, that probably is, um, but I should. Well, those yeah. people, you know what they should, uh, you know what they should do? What's that? Check their privilege. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to say no, yeah, I take a hike. Oh, I thought you were going to say because uh, the last time I said the suck it. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> That one works. I like that one better. Um, yeah, yeah, so a bit of, uh, and, and we do have to get right to it, but a bit of explanation, yeah. So you'll notice uh, today especially, like there's a disproportionate um, uh, number it's very of. Very lopsided, yeah. yeah. Uh, I only have a, a handful of movies. David has several dozen. Um, Not quite that many, but yeah. Two dozen. Um but uh, yeah, and I'm sure there are a number of people who, if they're like me, think that I'm just a big old fraud uh, for hosting a movie podcast, but I'm not watching a lot of movies. I should say that, as some of you know, I just started teaching professionally, yeah. and so I'm still in the phase where I am uh, designing lesson plans and stuff, yeah. and I'm still doing a little bit of driving for Lyft, so that's taking up a lot of my exactly. time. But thankfully, those lesson plans are now done. And now it really is just going in and repeating everything. Uh, and so hopefully my evenings will be a bit more free now to get yeah, and see Yeah, that's what stuff. I mean by check your privilege. Not, yeah. you're, you're busy. These people at home, they have all the live long day yeah. to sit and watch mini flicks. Yes, they do. And it's a good thing, too, uh, because, well, I, I can't really transition exactly into it, but that's all right. This movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires uh, short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, and Toronto, and many other film festivals, meaning you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on tic- typical uh, free video platforms. So, okay. Uh, today, now I want to make sure I get the pronunciation right. I'm not 100% sure I will. Uh, Parvane. Uh, it was an, uh, an Oscar nominated short film from 2015. P A R V A N E H. Parvane? I'm not sure exactly. Uh, but either way, it tells the story of a young Afghan immigrant who lives uh, in a transit in a transit center for asylum in the Swiss mountains. So, you know, there's, it's a bit timely. Uh, upon hearing of her father's illness, she travels to Zurich for the first time in order to get her family the money needed to survive. Along the way, she faces both the dangers and the unexpected friendships that come with facing uh, a Swiss culture so foreign to her own. Directed by uh, Iranian and Swiss director. It's an interesting combination. Uh, uh, Talcon Hamzavi, like very specific. Uh, it is a timely exploration, as I said, of identity in the face of political and geographical divides. So that is just one of many films available on Miniflix. There are new movies being added every month, and you can watch these incredible award-winning short films anytime, anywhere, on any streaming device for only three ninety-nine a month. Or, as a Battleship Pretension listener, you can get a free 30-day trial of commercial-free, award-winning short films. Just go to the page for this week's Movie Journal episode and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom to redeem the special offer. All right, so let's start on the movies we watched since the last time. It's been two weeks, and yeah. part of that two weeks, I had a number of days off of work for yeah. the... You had a five-day weekend. I had a five-day weekend. That's crazy. My My, my, uh, my employers are very generous with the mm-hmm. 4th of July weekend. 4th of July fell on a... 
on a Wednesday. Yeah. They just gave me the rest of the week off. Yeah. It was. I literally yeah. taught on Fourth of July. You huh. think that they would? Uh, yeah, but that's oh crazy. Well. Uh, so yeah, I have plenty to watch, and it's going back a couple weeks, which I sometimes hate because I'm. It's been, when I've watched a bunch of movies, and then I'm going back mm-hmm. two weeks to talk about when it's like, how did I feel about that? Yeah. So the first one I watched. Uh, now you remember, I think the last movie I talked about on the last movie journal was Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, yes. So I decided to watch another Burt Reynolds movie. This okay. one, because I'd never seen any movies that he directed. Okay. So I watched 1981's Sharky's Machine. Okay. Have you ever seen this movie? No, but I've I've heard good and bad things about it. I don't think it's very good. Okay. Um, I mean, I think he's got some skills in some way. There's a nice... Uh, uh, I do think there's a very sort of... It's... It surprised me when I go back and see that it's 1981 because it feels like later 80s in the way that it embraces the um, the the metropolis. Uh, it mm-hmm. takes place in Atlanta, which a lot of movies take place in now, yeah, but yeah. was a little less common back then. Uh, and it's all sort of like uh, you know skyscrapers and and uh, you know high and living. And he's he's the guy who's. Uh, he's the Burt Reynolds type who yeah. doesn't have time for all that, you yeah. know? Uh, but basically he's a homicide detective who is involved, uh, in a, a, a sting that goes wrong and a civilian gets shot. And so he gets busted down to vice mm. and then ends up stumbling upon a prostitution ring that involves high ranking members of the city's government and the police force. Okay. And so, the group of guys in vice that he trusts become his machine. So it's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a Burt Reynolds movie, but it's also kind of a team movie, but it's yeah. still really Burt Reynolds. Um, but, uh, I, I, so I like the visual sense, sense of it. Um, it's incredibly violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that kind of was a bit, in a way that was a bit of a turnoff to me. It felt really indulgent, which, I mean, isn't necessarily, you know, and there are movies that are indulgent. I like Boz Lerman movies. Sure. Like, indulgent isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but if it feels masturbatory, which I guess this kind of does. There's something about an actor <laughs> indulging himself that feels yeah. particularly wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and also it's a stupid, like there's, there's, this is just one example. And I'm not usually like a plot this isn't even a plot hole. This is just plot stupidity. Okay. I, I don't even normally get hung up on plot issues too much, but there's a whole thing where like there's a, one of the prostitutes that can testify against this whole ring. Mm-hmm. The, the bad guys think she's dead. Okay. But, uh, Sharky knows that she's not. In fact, he's found her is keeping her at a safe house. Okay. All he has to do is keep her safe until the trial and, or, or whatever. And she can, uh, speak out and everything would be great mm-hmm. but he goes to the bad guys and is like guess what fuckers i have <laughs> this woman that you think you killed that you didn't and he, there's no reason for him to tell them that yeah. because he tells them that like a half dozen more people get killed because they're searching for this woman yeah and so like all the heroics of like, Oh my God, what's happening? Like Sharky's machine is Sharky going to be able to save his buddies. But it's like, he condemned them. Yeah. It's very stupid. And it, it kind also of that he could movie. like spike the football, but he hadn't scored a touchdown yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, last thing I'll say though. Uh, so the bad, there's like two bad guys. It's like kind of like the, the cray brothers. They're both, they're okay. brothers. They're both 
evil, but one of them is like the cold and calculated evil, and one of them is just a fucking psychopath. Okay. Henry Silva plays the psychopath, and he's by far the best part of the movie. Of course. Um, Who's the cold calculated? Uh, it wasn't not an actor that I okay. uh, that I recognized. Um, uh, Vittorio Gassman is his name, mm. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that I watched that. All right, moving on. This is I'm going to do this as this is. I'm counting these essentially three movies as one because it's okay. a feature in two shorts. Okay. Uh, so I was like, you know what? You you know what you don't know a lot about, David? In fact, you don't know anything about is Laurel and Hardy. Hey, all and right. so I watched some Laurel and Hardy, and I have surmised that Laurel and Hardy sucks. <laughs> it's not. Wait, what did you watch? Uh, so the feature I watched was Sons of the Desert because okay. that's kind of I think it seems to be their uh, what most people point to as far as the, what I looked at. I'm trying um, to think like the ones I've seen. So Sons of the Desert is, they belong to a Elk Lodge type thing, whatever called Sons of the Desert, and they want to go to the convention in Chicago. Mm -hmm. They live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually listened to a podcast today about the pronunciation of Los Angeles and why why in old movies there's sometimes Mm -hmm. a hard G or a long E or whatever, because it was like, it never became official until like the 1970s. Oh, wow. Where the the people officially said like, because you can, like, there's like, mayors of the city into the 50s and 60s who say Los Angeles hmm. or whatever and it wasn't until the 70s that like this the the city decreed yeah. that we officially are pronounced Los Angeles even though the Spanish name is Los Angeles yeah I know um but uh anyway I was just listening to that today that's, that's very interesting anyway so uh they want to go to the convention their wives are like no because you're just going to get drunk and screw around that's what conventions mm-hmm. apparently are and so they kind of true <laughs> and so they come up with this whole thing this whole fake th- they essentially is about them lying to their wives to go get drunk and carouse in Chicago okay uh and so like they're not sympathetic to me to be <laughs> at this point <laughs> right because they're total jerks uh and way too much of their comedy is um like laurel uh or yanny um saying something like (laughs) confidently saying something stupid incorrectly or whatever you're a monster yeah (laughs) and then hardy like suffers the consequences and then like puts his hand on his chin and looks right at the camera. Yeah. That's like the, their entire dynamic. Yeah. They, I, I mean, they started in silent comedy and it really shows. I think theirs translated into like, uh, sound fairly okay, but they definitely still have those sensibilities. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, I, it's funny you say that cause the sound, cause the other one I watched, which was on the one hand sounded cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it has some camera trickery. Uh, but on the other hand was, uh, internal and like it completely unbearable to me. It's called brats okay. where they play themselves and they play their sons. So it's like they're at home. I don't know where the, you know, yeah. wives or whatever are, but they're watching their two sons. Oh, they left a long time. Ago. <laughs> and then, and this, and so, uh, the sons are played by Laurel and Hardy, uh, with Hardy with his mustache shaved, which is oh, really, yeah, that, uh, hey, very rare. Commitment. Um, and then they're on sets that are built to like oh, okay. three times scale. Yeah. But then there are a couple of shots that's clearly like a camera, you know, like a split diopter or whatever or, hmm. or, or double exposure or something because they're both in the shot at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there is some fun to like, Hey, they built this enormous bathroom so that like, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, Hardy could like get in the bathtub and swim around <laughs> or whatever, but it's like three times the size of a bathtub. Yeah. Um, that's fun. But the comedy is just not, it's, it's so much just like, like, Oh, I fell on my butt. <laughs> and that, like stuff like that. It's very stupid. <laughs> Um, if that was a line in it, I yeah. would like it. Uh, but then the third, so that's sons of the desert brats. The third one I watched and these silent ones, I just, after I watched the feature, I was like, okay, so I watched some shorts. Um, and there's some that are for free on Amazon prime. Mm-hmm. So I watched, uh, that's when I watched brats. And then I watched hog wild, which was my favorite of okay. the bunch because I think it, it felt more like a, uh, Buster Keaton thing where it had some more spectacular, set pieces mm-hmm. uh because the the premise is that um they're supposed to again go to a sons of the desert meeting or they're supposed yeah. to go somewhere but hardy's wife is like you need to put the uh what does she call it it's not the antenna it's like an old-timey term for okay. the radio it's like you have to put the 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 things up on the roof no, not rabbit ears uh, that's a different thing. no but it is no it's the the big uh oh i can't remember what it's called now anyway uh, so it's them, you know, trying to put this thing on the roof. They keep, uh, Hardy keeps falling off the roof into like a pond on the property or mm. whatever. Uh, at one point they knocked the entire chimney down. Uh, but then the, the sort of, uh, climax of it is that in order to get back onto the roof, they put a ladder on Laurel, Laurel's car so that, so that he can get up there. And then the car ends up like getting knocked and like driving away. Right. And so like Laurel's trying to get the car, uh, while Hardy, or maybe it's the other way around, but uh, one of them is on the ladder, you know, like 10 feet mm-hmm. above the car as it's driving through the town, narrowly missing other stuff. That one's that is, fun. That is very Buster Keaton. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, those are the Laurel and Hardy. I don't think I'm a Laurel and Hardy fan. Okay. Um, but uh, Hogwild was not bad if you're going to watch one. Okay. Uh, now on to only my third thing. Uh, I went and saw a documentary called five seasons the gardens of piet odolf mm-hmm. who is um i guess considered more or less the foremost currently working landscape architect mm-hmm. uh you tyler will know his work for the same reason i do okay. he designed the uh lori garden at the millennium park in oh yeah in Chicago. Okay. yeah yeah um which I, my wife and I have many pictures of, of us mm. there from when we, my 30th birthday, five years ago, my 30th birthday trip to Chicago. Um, we're getting old, David. Yeah, <laughs> happens. Uh, and anyways, the, uh, the documentary is called five seasons cause it takes place over a year and three months and it's split into five chapters from fall to fall. Uh, and it just sort of like, you see his process, you see, they visit places all over the world that he's designed and you also actually get to see them, at different um, uh, different times of the year. So the, the other famous thing in the in the U.S. that he did is the High Line in New York City. If you okay. know what that is, it's like essentially a long old elevated train track that no longer has a train hmm. running on it. So they built like a an elevated walkway slash jogging path, uh, you know, that goes over multiple blocks of the city hmm. and then planted uh, oh, plants neat. all along it. Yeah, um, it, it looks very cool. Uh, and he did the, the, he designed the, the landscape architecture or whatever the plans for that too. Um, the main project he's working on is a museum in, uh, somewhere in the, in the UK. Um, and that becomes cool because you see his process. This is what I really liked. Cause I'm not, I don't think of myself as a creative person, mm-hmm. 
but his process of designing is so step by step that I was like, if I were going to be a creative person, that's how I would do it. Like he, he ends up with like, he has like, um, he, you know, draws the outline of the thing. And then he like each color or shape represents a different type of thing. He draws it in. And then he also does layers on like paper, like thin paper, like tracing paper Mm -hmm. so that, not only is he designing the whole thing, he's also designing the order in which everything needs to be planted. So you can set oh. down one piece and say, okay, that's what we do first. Yeah. And then set down the second piece right on top of it. And it'll say, okay, here's what needs to be done second. And like, as you, so, so he doesn't have to actually do any of the planting, which right. becomes a funny thing. He goes to visit this thing while it's, I love documentaries where they, what we were talking about, uh, with Camille recently mm-hmm. about, um, a movie not pretending that it's not a movie. Right. And I, so I love when documentaries acknowledge there's a part when he's at this, this thing that's being planted in the UK and someone, I don't think it's someone from the crew. I think it's someone from the museum is like, Oh, do you want to get a shot of him? Like plant, like we're planting all these things. Do you want to plant one for the camera? And he's like, no, (laughs) he's like, I got to, he's like, I guess he loves plants. He loves designing things. He doesn't like actually getting down on his knees and doing the work. And why would he like, he's like, uh, I got to this point in my life. I don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) Uh, And I thought that was very funny. Uh, it's a really nice movie. It's like 75 minutes long. It's a perfectly good, uh, way to spend an afternoon. Okay. Okay. Whew. Let's keep going. Uh, Oh, next movie I was very excited about, uh, and my review is available on the website. Uh, uh, Jared McMurray's Gerard McMurray's The First Purge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Purge there's, franchise. There's a TV show now. Oh, let me tell you, okay. I know the TV show because I there's something happens in this movie that I've never seen. Okay, which is instead of a mid credits scene, there's a mid credits commercial for the upcoming TV show. Okay, that's okay. Like it starts with the like what you would call the end titles, mm-hmm. the non rolly ones. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a, that, There's like, that insider. Uh, but I also like, I don't know how much of that, like it is insider. Like, like in my line of work, the sure. difference between titles and credits is very specific. Yeah. Credits yeah. roll titles. Yeah. Don't do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I need, I feel like I need to be clear for right. people who aren't in my line of work to know what I mean by the difference between the end titles and the end credits. Yeah. So there's the titles, which are static. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're often, um, often these days referred to as main on ends because there are no main titles anymore in so many movies. Oh yeah. That's you know, true. It just, they just wait until it's, it's, it's a main on end. So I think these are main on ends. And then, yeah, the commercial starts and yeah. then the credits roll. Okay. It's really weird. Huh. Uh, uh, and um, I'm kind of excited for the. I think it's a limited series, but I think okay. it's a quote unquote limited series. The way that like Under the Dome was a limited series sure. until it was popular enough yeah. to warrant a season two. Yeah. I get the feeling that's what they're doing with the Purge. They're I selling can, it as a mini series, yeah. but if enough people watch it, there will be more. I feel like the Purge could work really, really well yeah. Yeah. as a almost. Can you imagine if they made the Purge in a 24 structure? Where every episode is one hour of oh, the so purge in, in one day. Yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, anyway, so this is uh, this one is the first purge. The first one not directed by James DeMonico, but it is written by him. And I feel I don't know that he's gone on record as saying this, but I think it was wise of him if he was going to turn over the hand over the keys to hand it over to a director of color, which he did mm. because the nature of. Have you seen any of them? No. So the nature of this, the first one is about a wealthy white family. Right. And as each one goes on, you, be, you come to realize more and more who are disproportionately the victims of the purge, which right. is poor people and people of color. Mm-hmm. And so 
the it's it's a weird like almost like a trojan horse franchise that started being about one thing and then it's like gotcha you're watching a franchise about how uh about how public policy inadvertent like it disproportionately affects poor people or people of color Mm -hmm. uh and so i do think uh, it was if he was going to hand over like i said uh, i'm gerard mcmurray uh is a director of color this is my first the first feature of his that i've seen it's only the second feature that he's made he made one that's on netflix called burning sands just last year mm. i don't know much about it um uh and this one it's i like i like the first purge a lot it is my third favorite of the four mm-hmm. but still it's i still like it the only one i don't really like is the first one uh, but I'd say the drawbacks for me is that this this is still, or at least this is nominally a horror franchise. Right. This one is the least horror. I think because it's going back to the beginning of this thing. So is it more action? It's very much an action okay. movie. Yeah, because it's going back to the beginning of this thing, it like is taking place before the sort of cultish ritualistic aspects of The Purge have really set in, mm-hmm. which is where a lot of the horror and Grand Guignol type of stuff comes in in the in in the other entries in the series so this one it has a few of thing things like that that uh because this is the first experiment um as they call it um the uh those who choose to participate are um given eye contacts that are that track their movements and also record everything like cameras but what they also do is they make everybody's eyes glow so the people who are out there killing people have these glowing blue eyes which is kind of a cool horror type of uh type of thing um but yeah it's really it's really uh an, an action movie and it's a good one i think the action is good like down and dirty um there is a the sort of climax um is a mix of the opening sequence of Dawn of the Dead and Die Hard in the Projects. The newer Dawn of the uh, Dead, I assume. Uh, no, I meant the, oh, the, the, older, the, okay, the George Romero. Okay. It takes place in a housing project, much, okay, like, the, got it, got much it. like the beginning of Dawn of the Dead. Yes. Um, uh, where, you know, what happens in The Purge uh, stays in The Purge. That's not what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> what, it, what we've seen going back to the second movie is that, yeah, everyone can, you know, commit whatever crimes they want but also mm-hmm. some people uh be it governmental organizations or big business organizations who need to like get rid of a lot of people at once yeah hire mercenary teams to go out right. so there's this mercenary team that's sweeping through the projects just killing people yeah. and so there's one guy a drug dealer with a heart of gold um who even has the white tank top like like john mcclain yeah and he's the one fighting back uh okay. and and killing these guys at the end it's a, it's a really, very cool very cool sequence uh it's a very cool movie i'm glad this i'm glad this franchise exists yeah. i think I could choose to be to sit here and point out all the ways that its allegory falls apart and always has. Sure. You know, it's never been it's never been really consistent uh, about what exactly it's condemning. But I would rather celebrate the broad strokes that I'm glad there is a franchise out there Mm -hmm. that is this uh, overtly uh, 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 political and dialectical uh, about modern issues. Uh, many years ago, there was so there's a uh, website uh, called Reason that is libertarian based, and uh, when the f- when the first Purge film, not the first, damn it, yeah, this is very annoying, frustrating. Twenty thirteen's the Purge. There we go. When that came out, uh, they made a little uh, video, and it, 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 you don't get more libertarian than this video. <laughs> and it's a, it's meant to be amusing, but it's uh, it's all right for the next. 
12 hours, there are no laws. And one guy's like, oh, I'm going to start a business with, without any of the zoning permits. And then someone else is just like, I'm going to drink a large soda in New York. Uh, you know, yeah. talking about all the all the laws and stuff that uh, like we jumped to murder, but it's like, oh, it'd be really nice to just well, that, be able to park over here. That's actually kind of um, it's kind of addressed here that mm-hmm. people's initial reaction is to just like drink in the streets or yeah. have sex in public or like do that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's not really until except for like one or two crazy people. It's not really right. until the mercenaries start coming in that they heighten everything yeah. and everyone starts murdering everybody. Yeah. Which, yeah, is itself something of a, of a political statement that our natural tendencies maybe aren't to kill each other, yeah. but when somebody powerful has an agenda, suddenly that's right. When this comes along, that's very interesting. Okay. What, what do we got next? All right, we've got a couple more, right, until I get to take a break? Yeah. Okay, well, so, okay. So I, I said I uh, was uh, com- like pretty much completely unfamiliar with Laurel and Hardy. I'm also pretty completely unfamiliar outside of who's on first with Abbott and Costello. Okay. So I watched what everyone sort of points to as their most famous, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm. This is a fun movie. Yeah. This is, you've seen it? I have. And then as far as the their non-meeting like movies, uh, Africa Scream is Screams is probably there. Okay, yeah, I, I should watch known. more because this yeah. uh, Avenue Still Meet Frankenstein is. Um, uh, it, I mean, it's not super funny, but yeah, uh, it reminded me. I mean, this is going to sound sacrilegious, but it like reminded me of, um, um, like Young Frankenstein in that mm-hmm. it's it actually has some respect for oh yeah for these movies and these characters and obviously it's a lot closer than young frankenstein because it's i mean in turn in in time it's closer and because you've got actually got uh you've actually got lon cheney and and bill lugosi mm-hmm. um not boris karloff um who refused right and then eventually did one of these with them mm-hmm. uh once he saw they were successful i guess yeah um but uh, I don't really know what else to to to, to say about it. Um, um, I don't know. I, I, I liked it. It's fun. Yeah, I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not really sure what else to say. Well, and as it's you know, so looking at these two different comedy teams, one of them, like I said, started in the silent age. Yeah. One of them came after the silent age, and I think it's even though obviously, <laughs> yeah. like Luke Costello still does like these big over the top reactions and such. Uh, the way they interact with each other, like the fact that their biggest uh, bit is who's on first, which is purely spoken. Yes. Like it speaks to like their sensibilities certainly being more modern than Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite jokes was about, cause they're, they work as like delivery men, like a UPS type place or something. Uh, cause they get the coffin as a, Mm -hmm. like they're supposed to ship the coffin or whatever. That's how it whole, the whole thing starts. Uh, and Lucas says something, uh, about like, because his boss is like, you're just going to have to take it there. And he's like, no, I'm a union man. I only work 16 hours a day. And he's like, union men only work eight hours a day. I belong to two unions. But yeah, it's mostly a lot of fun. Bella Lugosi is clearly having a lot of fun. Mm. Um which is interesting to see, I guess. Yeah. Not something I think of, uh, of him yeah, having think a blast. Of him being miserable all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and cor- calling Boris Karloff a cocksucker. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so I don't really have much to say about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Okay. Um, but I liked it and I hope to watch more Abbott and Costello movies. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, 
you'll see some patterns here. I went through comedy, okay, and next, so I'm going to do one more, and we'll take a break. But I also next I went into sort of a noir-ish okay. phase. Although I wonder, sometimes I think we overapply the term noir. Like sometimes it seems like any crime movie from the 40s and 50s right. gets labeled noir. Whereas I feel like it needs to either have the expressionistic. Uh, visual sense yeah or it needs to have this story about a sort of every man drawn to the bad side or both right you know what i mean if it's just about if it's just a detective story is that noir i don't think so i think it's just a detective story you know um and yeah no i absolutely agree with you um i mean there are people that say night of the hunter is noir and i don't agree one bit like it's expressionistic, but, it's, but that's yeah. th- like the the main characters are children. Yeah, and yes, this preacher is is this monstrous guy, but he's not really representative of the church, and he mm-hmm. is seen as he, he becomes like like this the stuff of nightmares, like a nightmarish figure, which is not something you find in noir yeah. very much. Like it's expressionistic, but that's not enough either. Yeah. Um, it has to be a, you know, basically like what was once called a crime picture mixed with, I'd say fatalism and expressionism. Okay. That's usually w- what it is. So I watched a movie, um, called down three dark streets, which is okay. a good noir title. Damn right. Um, but really what it's about is, uh, it's actually about, um, the FBI. Okay. Um, not so it's not a detective story quote unquote it's an fbi right. story but there's an fbi agent he's got three open cases mm-hmm. his office gets a call from a woman saying i have information about one of his cases i need him to meet me here tonight he goes there and he is killed and so is the woman so his the the other guy who inherits his cases basically is told we know one of these cases one of these three cases uh leads to the guy who murdered our agent mm-hmm. and so this is a FBI story about a guy investigating three cases at once. Okay. Um, that's neat. Uh, yeah, it is actually. Um, although it's not, um, I would say it's maybe for a less sophisticated audience in the sense that you or I, uh, 30 minutes in, we know who did sure. it. Sure. <laughs> um, there's one guy who's like clearly evil. Right. Um, and it didn't even have like, I was like, well maybe, maybe he's a red herring. No, I'm giving it too much credit. He's the bad guy. Mm. Uh, but, um, it's a, it's a pretty dry movie a lot of the time, but it has some nice touches. The guy who plays the bad guy, whose name I forget, I don't have time to look up, um, is actually pretty good. And then there's all other story where, um, uh, one of the, one, one of the, the cases involves him, um, interviewing, um, the, the, um, the wife of a suspect who is um, blind. And oh, so there's okay. these great scenes with this blind woman in which part of the sort of irony of the scene is that she makes a better quote unquote eyewitness than anyone else hmm. because she's like, cause she notices so much. Right. And also she knows like, she like, she's like, well, I can tell you he was, he probably weighed, uh, he weighed at least this much because there's a floorboard that creaks in the hallway, but it only creaks mm. if people are so heavy, <laughs> you know, and there, there's a, there's some cool stuff with that. Um, but I think the, uh, uh, and it's, it, so it's a, it's a fun idea for a movie. It's not bad, but I think, uh, Broderick Crawford plays the oh. FBI agent. Nothing wrong with that. You like him? I thought, I thought he was a little bit, um, it's a little too nondescript 
for me for the movie. Well, it's, I mean, maybe he's playing a Hoover man and that's what they're supposed to be like. Maybe. I mean, when I think of him, I think of all the King's men first Mm -hmm. and it's a really wonderful layered performance. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe, uh, like you said, the movie's a little dry. Maybe he doesn't do great in a dry movie. Yeah. All right. So I think it's your turn. Okay. So this is a rewatch, but I haven't seen the movie in 12 years and I only saw it once. Um, Providing a bit of context, uh, I watched this in class uh, with my students, and it was a last-minute decision. I was I, I've right. been given a fair amount of control over the curriculum, and so the curriculum that was written for me um, involved watching Zootopia uh, and then talking about some of its themes, but. In the session before, one of the things I was talking about was the impact of uh, September 11th on film. Uh And we watched a number of trailers, one of them being United 93, and the students wanted to watch that. And so I made a call, which was, rather than Zootopia, we're going to watch United 93, which... uh, It's a a one-to-one, though. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, sure, one's a little bit desaturated. But beyond that, it's basically the same. <laughs> um, I have not seen United 93 since the theater. Neither have I. Uh, and I was fascinated to watch it with all of my... Okay, all my students are Italian. Mm-hmm. The oldest one is 18. So technically alive. Uh, well, definitely alive, <laughs> but not... Has no memory of, of yeah. this. And so... First off, they were all, you know, they all learned new information. They didn't know just how many planes uh, had been hijacked. But anyway, so watching the movie again, first off, I have a surprising, I had a surprising memory for it because it's a movie that just, I think it's directed in in a way that uh, has these nice moments. And it's a little bit repetitive because everybody's just constantly trying to figure out what is going on. Um, But it is marvelous i absolutely like every i think this is something i say from time to time every chance it has to get something wrong it doesn't do that <laughs> uh it it only gets things right uh one of my students asked why are we not seeing the other planes why are we only seeing this one and i thought like because that's what's respectful because this is the only plane where because of phone calls and stuff we have an idea of what's happening. We don't want to we don't want to speculate about what would happen what was happening right. on the other planes uh because that would be potentially disrespectful to the people on those planes. Yeah. Because on top of everything else there's a retrospect uh, there's a, a a retrospect element which is when you know what this was all heading towards. Mm-hmm. then the plane that f- the, the passengers that fought back are seen as heroes. Well, that's three planes where the passengers didn't fight back. And yeah. even though we all know, or we can all assume that they were told by the hijackers that we're going back to the airport or whatever, like everyone thought this is like fine. This is financially motivated. Mm-hmm. They didn't think that they were going to go slamming into buildings uh, they didn't think it was a suicide mission, but nonetheless, regardless of that, I think there's there's an inherent potential to judge the passengers that did not fight mm-hmm. back, and we also don't know if they maybe they did. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Maybe they did. So that's the thing because we don't know. Rather than speculate, he keeps everything to what we 
know and is simply depicting it. So like whether it be the, the radio, the, the control tower people or the military, whatever it is. And then he makes the very wise decision that the moment, pretty much the moment the terrorists on United 93 make themselves known, we are on that plane and we don't leave. Mm. And it's it's such a, a, a we we see the you know everything leading up to it yeah I think I'd forgotten um, and we cut back and forth but then and but and I was like wow I thought we spent a lot more time on the plane and then once yeah once it is hijacked mm. we are on that plane and we don't leave and we never see anything again and so just structurally it's amazing the performances are all marvelous by various you know when the biggest name guy is Greg Henry. Right. You know, it's it speaks to a cast that is a number of very dependable character actors, but not even actors that you would know by name. Um, And then a couple people playing themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, And it is just a wonderfully realized film that I think is completely respectful. I don't think it I don't think it pulls on your heartstrings any more than the situation would. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. The students were really impacted by it. They, you know, a couple of them were crying, of course, at the end. And uh, and yeah, I, I was very happy that I rewatched it. Um, it is a just a marvelous film. Okay, back to noir. All right, uh, I watched the movie from 1948 called He Walked by Night. Okay, have you seen this one? I have not. Uh, this one I liked uh, a lot. Um, even though, again, it just seems more of a detective story, mm-hmm. but it also sp- uh, it's a detective story that spends a lot of time with the bad guy who is, mm. it feels like kind of a precursor to a uh, seven or something like that in which it, you're spending a lot of time with this uh, incredibly intelligent but also incredibly uh, immoral psychopath mm-hmm. um, who basically the way he makes his living is by stealing and reselling um, audiovisual equipment which seems pretty low key, but he's also willing to murder anyone who gets in his way at any point, um, and is also very good at not getting caught. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, so the movie is directed by officially directed by. Let me uh, let me look it up here. Um, Alfred L. Worker, but uh, it is, uh, I guess, from what I from what I've read, largely understood to have been uh, ghost directed by Anthony Mann. Oh, okay. Um, and I feel like I haven't seen that much Anthony Mann, but I feel like there's a straightforwardness and a brutality to the violence mm. that is, yes, an unsentiment, a lack of sentimentality uh, in the way the violence is um, portrayed, but, but not gleefully either. Right. Just very straightforward and also a real sense of pacing that doesn't feel it doesn't feel ginned up in terms of the pay like at the end there's a big chase through the la sewer system mm-hmm. which apparently this is the mo- the first movie that shot in the sewers oh. and was the reason they ended up shooting the finale of them in the sewers a few okay. years later because they're like oh this is a cool location because there is actually like there's one junction of sewers that i'm like i'm pretty sure that's where the ants are <laughs> at the end of them uh, you looked, just watched them right? uh, a couple oh, months ago yeah. yeah three months ago um Anyway, um, but like the, the, the opening crime where he, uh, basically the, the bad guy is trying to break into this like electronic store, but he sees a cop mm-hmm. patrolling the streets. So he decides to play it cool, tosses like lock picking kid and walk away. But the cop decides to pull over and ask him for ID. Mm-hmm. And so instead he 
pulls out a gun and shoots the cop yeah. point blank and then tries to steal a car and the cop with his dying breath like takes his cop car and slams it into the car he's going to steal mm. and the guy runs away and it's like the, that whole thing is maybe like four different pieces of film you've got yeah. like you've got like the back and forth and then it cuts to when he when he shoots so you've got the shot out of the car at the cop and then you've got his point of view of the cop but then when it, he shoots the cop the camera pulls back to a new, a new point of view over the mm. killer's shoulder so you're seeing the point of view almost of the like you're seeing down the length of his arm and so you're seeing this cop get shot point blank and then it just cuts to a high angle of the street where he runs across gets in the car and then oh, I guess there is another shot of the cop inside the car like struggling to get the mm. wheel and then it cuts back to the high angle in this car just in one large like I feel like now we'd see like more kosher. Oh, sure, sure. It's just one large overhead, uh, you know, shot from like high up on the lamppost type of thing of the cop car just mm-hmm. starting, turning, and driving directly across the street and T-boning this other car. Well, it's, that's, really, it's really a cool sequence. That speaks to like the matter of fact, unsentimental yeah. tone is yeah. that we're at, we are seeing this pivotal moment at a distance. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the whole getaway or the, the whole chase at the end is like, uh, it's what I'm talking about with like seven or, or those type of movies where you're kind of, uh, you want them to get the bad guy because he's awful, but you're also kind of marveling at his ingenuity and the mm-hmm. way that he keeps getting away. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, it's re- yeah, I really liked walk. Uh, he walked by night a lot. Okay. Uh, and then I watched a really great, um, movie. Again, it has a noirish title, but I don't think of it as, as noir at all. Um, it's called Act of Violence with Van Heflin. Act of Violence? Act of Violence. Okay. Van Heflin is the star. Robert Ryan, who's not an actor I know well. but he oh, kinda, he's great. He has like a Ronald Reagan look, or a young Ronald Reagan look. Yes, he does. Uh, but also Janet Lee and Mary Astor are mm-hmm. in it, which is, uh, was uh, appealing to me. A young, I mean, this is 1949, so That's Janet, a very Janet young Lee's Janet like 21 Lee. yeah. or whatever. Um, but Van Heflin plays a... Uh, World War II vet who um, uh, has moved to the small town of California has become sort of a pillar of the town. He's married Janet Lee, mm-hmm. um, and then this uh, this guy Robert Ryan, who mm-hmm. served in the war with him, has come to see him, not to talk, but specifically to kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's some sort of question like it's about something he did in the war. Robert Ryan walks yeah. with a limp. You're like, okay, he blames Van Heflin for something. You do eventually, you find out not even the, you find out about halfway through what it's about. And it's, uh, it is pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, but I, and I won't give that away. Uh, but it's like, it, yeah, it's, it does feel kind of noirish in the sense that it's about a guy who seems like a really good guy. And the more we learn about him, the more you're like, it starts to question your sympathy sympathies, but also by this point you're halfway in, you've seen his happy home life. You've seen people love him. He seems like a nice guy. You want him to not get killed by Robert Ryan, but also the more you learn about why Robert Ryan wants to kill him, Mm -hmm. you get it in a way. You know what I mean? Um, uh, so yeah. And then, uh, he eventually much like little and Hardy, he goes to a convention this time (laughs) in in Los Angeles, um, which is how I say it. (laughs) Um, uh, and that's when he ends up like he, because Van Heflin is like scared and also dealing with the, all this guilt of what he did in the war or whatever. He gets drunk and ends up hanging out with a prostitute, but a Mary Esther <laughs> all night. All right. Um, uh, who, who then like sets him up with, uh, uh, a crook who's like, I can take care of your Robert Ryan pl- problem. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, 
It's directed by Fred Zinneman, who did oh, nice. uh, Man for All Seasons. Yeah. Um, and then you've also and got... Day of the Jackal, I believe. Uh, which I've never seen. Um, the other actress I really liked in it that I don't... I don't know anything about her. Phyllis Thaxter. Maybe maybe she should have changed her name like all those other actresses because Phyllis Thaxter is a, a yeah. tough one. Uh, but she plays Robert Ryan's girl. Is she... Is it nice. It's not... His character's name isn't Robert Ryan, but I don't remember right. it. Um... And she is like, you got to let this thing go, you know, uh, hmm. it, you know, it's not worth it. You're not going to bring your buddies back or whatever. No. Anyway, it's a real like sort of m- like queasy movie that's hmm. really well made uh, and, and kind of uncompromising. Right. So um, definitely check great. out Active Violence. Okay. Um, it's on Filmstruck, which is how I watched it. I was so bad saying Filmstruck when they're not a sponsor, although they that's have sponsored... True. Our they've sponsored our Comic Con parties in the past, right? Which, by the way, we're not doing one this year. Yeah, I don't know if we've said that. We've not because no. um, we're naming neither of us is going to be there on Thursday night, which is when we usually do. Uh, right. Uh, I'm doing a brief brief for Comic Con this year. You we're also going to do a brief one, but then work things came up. You're not coming yeah. at all. Yeah. So we'll see about this. Uh, all right. Next up for me is a movie that I know you've seen. Okay. Uh, and I know you like because you're a big Buster Keaton guy. Mm-hmm. I watched Seven Chances. Okay. Which is. Um, I didn't realize the same based on the same play as the Chris O'Donnell vehicle, Chris O'Donnell vehicle, the bachelor, which I never yeah. saw, but I remember the trailers for, um, and yeah, this movie is, uh, well, first of all, it's fascinating because the prologue is shot in two strip Technicolor. It's 1925 mm-hmm. and the whole beginning, which is just for, it's for the exact same sh- setups in different seasons. Like chron- I don't know if you know, I really remember this. It chronicles a year of him not right. asking his best girl. Like he wants to marry her, but he can't get up the courage. And so it's yes. just like four shots in a row of him standing outside her house with her and her dog. And it's a different season each time. And he can't get up mm-hmm. the courage to ask her and it's in color, which is very cool. Yeah. Uh, after that, the rest of it's in black and white. Um, there's some great, uh, there's some great Buster Keaton, uh, stuff. <laughs> like there's some, at the end, there's some big Buster Keaton, like, yeah. uh, stunt type stuff. That's really, really great with the, uh, he's being, he's running down a hill and there's a bunch of boulders. Yeah. Out. They're obviously not real boulders, but it's, uh, it's really cool. The, yeah. the sequence of him jumping out of the way of the boulders, um, and all that stuff. And like, he's jumping on rock outcroppings, but there's a, there's a thing in the beginning that made me laugh so hard, which is his lawyer is reading his father's will, the whole thing, or his grandfather, the whole premise, if you don't know is if you don't remember the bachelor, the Chris O'Donnell, uh, vehicle, <laughs> in which his bachelor's, uh, his grandfather's played by Peter Ustinov. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, the grandfather's already dead in seven chances. Yeah. You never meet him. Uh, but he's, he's, uh, I'm leaving you $7 million. I think it's a hundred million in the bachelor. Mm-hmm. Anyway, $7 million, but only if you are married by such and such date and time, right. which happens to be that night. Yeah. Um, and so it's a mad dash of Buster Keaton trying to get someone to marry him mm-hmm. uh, so he can inherit $7 million. And so there's a part where while the lawyer is reading the will, his like the, the glasses that don't have the stems, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, just like, yeah. like on the nose keep falling off. Mm-hmm. And so Buster Keaton keeps reaching down and picking up the glasses, you know, um, which he doesn't wear glasses, but he right. keeps putting them, putting them back on the lawyer's face. And then they get to the sum of $7 million. He grabs the glasses off the lawyer's face and puts them on his own face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great bit. Um, yeah, I do think the middle of it when it's just him asking people, asking women to marry him kind of gets repetitive. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't not mention it at one point it does get racist. So there's a whole section in there. So he gets told no a lot and there's a whole section where he keeps walking up to women 
and like to ask them and then it turns out oh she's got a baby or it's like oh she's uh like 15 years old and then one he's like running up behind a woman he gets up to her and sees her and it's like oh this woman's black can't ask her yeah and it's like it's like ooh. um and there's also a joke i guess about a uh what we would now call a trans woman Mm. um but that was a joke that i did not you'd have i guess was a it was based on a popular or a well-known, I guess, female impersonator of 1925. Oh, okay. So the, it didn't even read. It wasn't even until I read it. Yeah. Because he like walks. He sees like a woman on a, like, who's performing that night, and he sees her mm-hmm. picture. And he's like, oh, I'll go ask her. And he comes out, and he's like, and I'm like, oh, I guess it didn't work with her. But yeah. it turned out the joke is that that person is a famous female right. impersonator. Anyway, um, I don't know how that joke holds up. It doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, then you get to the end where, uh, because he isn't telling these women why he wants to marry them because mm-hmm. because of what eventually happens, which is every woman in the entire city is chasing right. him uh, for the $7 million. And so uh, that's where you get into some sort of like, you know, the general Steve Bill Jr. type of like yes. action stunt type of yeah. comedy stuff that I really, really liked. Yeah. Um, and then, so, yeah, when he gets, when he finally gets to his best gal's house mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and his like clothes are torn to tatters from like mm. running in from these boulders or whatever. And his jacket gets caught in the gate of the fence yeah. and he can't get it through. So he just rips the entire fence out <laughs> and walks up the path with the, with yeah. the gate like trailing behind him off of his coat jackets. Great, great bit. Yeah. It's uh and I believe, uh, I think Keaton wasn't very excited about this film. I think it was based on something that was very popular and the studio said, Oh, let's, let's have you do this. And he wasn't, he was like, ah, okay, I don't really like this story. Uh, but then, um, the finale with like all the women chasing him and then uh-huh. you've got the boulders. That's where he was much more interested in, uh, basically once it started getting more ambitious and, and bigger, like that's when he, kind of came came alive as a as a director but okay okay um next up i watched uh i've i've become i'm still nowhere near like the real like horror guys but i've found that i tend to like as i've stopped watching tv Mm -hmm. and just watched stuff that is available online i keep gravitating toward old horror okay and so i watched a 1971 movie called let's scare Jessica to death. Oh, okay. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I've heard wonderful things it's about it. Go- so good. Yeah. So good. Um, because it really is. Um, I mean, there's obviously it's not a slasher movie, but there is a final girl type of aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really does a good job of establishing this character. The perform the woman who plays Jessica is, um, well, I'll tell you in a second. Uh, Zora Lampert uh, is her name, and it's a great performance. Um, and the way the, the way the movie like so she and her, um, I, I can't. I don't think they're married. She and her guy or whatever have bought a house out in the country, moving away from the city. And their friend and the guy friend with them has help, come to help them set up the house. And the house has like a orchard out back, and he's going to get them started. Um, but the town and the house have a whole history and everyone is treating them suspiciously. There's something going on in the house, I guess. But what we learn, I think in a clever, like non boring expositional way is that this woman, Jessica has already had some kind of 
nervous breakdown or something has already been institutionalized in the past. Mm. And so you can see these two guys in her life kind of walking the eggshells around her a little bit. And she's sort of alternates between trying to like break the ice by talking about it or also make them comfortable by not talking about it. Uh, and so so much of the movie is it's, it is a horror movie, a haunted house type of movie, although not really that. Um, it's also kind kind of a vampire ish movie, but mm. uh, not by traditional vampire rules. Um, but so much of the movie is about her mental state, um, which is a great uh, a great tactic because you don't know how much of what's happening is real or if she's losing her mind again. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, she's seeing bodies that are like there's a cove out back that you can swim in and fish on and she's seeing like a dead body just underneath the surface you don't know oh, it's wow. like is there something down there or is she losing it that's great um she's also like talking to herself there's, there's a lot of voiceover uh inside her head her specifically telling herself that things aren't real yeah uh, which at first i guess you believe her like but then it's also a horror movie suit. So right. like, no, Jessica, it is real. Run. <laughs> you should be scared today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Really, really cool movie. Uh, okay. I, I was, uh, pleasantly surprised. And then, uh, I'll finish off this section with, um, a couple of Ingmar Bergman movies. That okay. I watched. This is this year is, uh, big for Bergman. This would have been his hundredth birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, our friend Scott Nye on the website has occasionally been writing about Bergman and will be, um, for the remainder of the year, as I understand it. Um, there was just a new box set announced today, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. uh, of, of Bergman stuff. So I've been in that mood to, to, to feel Cause I'm, uh, I'm a big Bergman dummy. I don't know that much about him. So I watched, um, his first color film, uh, all these women, okay. which is, um, I think like uh, finally coming to Bergen Bergman so late in life has been a real scales from the eyes type of moment for me mm-hmm. because I feel like so much of the cultural perception of Ingmar Bergman is sort of informed by mostly by Woody Allen's interiors sure as being like very dour mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of uh, you know distant and solemn yeah. and artsy and I've come to realize that his movies are brimming with life mm-hmm. actually. Um, and are way funnier than I would have expected. I and mean, seventh seal, which is a movie about playing chess with death yeah. is also really funny. Yeah. Um, but this movie, all these women is a comedy. It is a full on farcical comedy mm-hmm. about a, um, it takes place, I think in the 1920s, uh, in Italy. And there's a music critic who has come to interview a famous cellist, at his mansion because he wants to write a biography of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the cellist lives in the mansion with his wife and five or six mistresses, uh, all of whom go by names that aren't their names because he, he gives them names. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember something. One of them is named Bumblebee. One of them is named, oh yeah, he named the butler Tristan and he named the maid Isolde after the oh, yeah, uh, so the old folktale Tristan and Isolde. Uh, I'm probably saying that second name wrong. Um, and you, part of the joke is you almost, you never really see the cellist. You, you kind of do. Um, and you also know from the beginning that the cellist dies. Okay. Uh, so it starts with this, uh, funeral service in which one by one, each of his, his wife and each of his mistresses look at the body and say the exact same thing, which is, um, uh, he looks the same and yet different. Uh, <laughs> they all say the exact same thing, okay. but in completely different intonations that give you yeah. in, insight into their individual characters. Um, 
and then it flashes back to four days earlier and then three days. So each like it's sort of separated into four chapters each, mm-hmm. you know, one day closer to the cellist dying. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and the, the movie is very much, I think, uh, Fellini esque in a lot of ways. And it's, it's, um, very theatrical and very colorful, um, and very, uh, buoyant in a lot of ways, but it also is, it should go, I think on the list of movies by filmmakers who maybe don't love critics because this critic is a fucking pompous blowhard. He is the butt of every joke, uh, in the entire movie. Hmm. Um, but it's so funny that I don't care. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he's, he's constantly sort of like dictating the book to himself and is way, way too pleased with his yeah. word choice. Um, uh, he writes, he, he takes notes with a gigantic feather pen. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then also he's easily tempted by all the, all these women. Huzzah. Indeed. Um, incidentally, uh, I should say, uh, critics have been depicted in films all the time. Yeah. Uh, we only have a problem with, I'll, I'll speak for all critics here. I think it's fine. Um, we only have a problem with it when it's a bad movie. Like to my, yeah, to my yeah. knowledge, no critic has a problem with Ratatouille. Right. Uh, and you didn't have a problem with this, no. like, but none of us were big fans of lady of the d- way critics were depicted in lady in the water yeah. because ugh. I know yeah. that you like it more than most, but oh, like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I feel like, I think I admire the attempt more than the actual execution. I feel like M night Shyamalan is due for a reevaluation by the kind of people who have dismissed him. I think mm-hmm. there are some people who like him because his stuff is, um, you know, it's, it has this sort of, uh, maybe a little bit superficially in- intellectually engaging in terms of it's sure. Uh, you know, dangling a carrot and, and yeah. you know, it, uh, it's, it's, you're, you're like the hamster hitting the pleasure thing sure. or whatever, uh, with his movies. But I think, uh, at some point, more, I guess, artsy fartsy minded, mm-hmm. uh, critics, um, maybe should reevaluate, uh, the way that he uses, uh, the camera and color and stuff like that. And I think Lady in the Water will benefit from that. Um, yeah. As a filmmaker, I think, I mean, something that people said for a long time is he needed, needs to start directing other people's scripts. Well, and, yeah. uh, but yeah, and I'd say that's, that was probably right for, for a while, but, uh, I think it would be interesting for us to do a profile on him. Obviously, his career is far from over. It's just getting started. It's just getting... Well, I don't know if that's true, but uh, but I think, yeah, I think it would... I think it would be beneficial to go back and, and watch, you know... I've not seen Wide Awake. Uh, I've heard it's interesting right, to watch. Yeah. Um, because it could wind up being that, you know we were all so blown away by Sixth Sense and then impressed by Unbreakable and then you and I and a number of other people I know really love Signs but I know a lot of people that don't like it a lot of people view Signs you know I look at him as having like a one two three punch a lot of people see it as a one two punch and then Signs started his yeah. downward uh, spiral or whatever you want to say yeah I'm, I'm with you I like I like those three and then yeah. The Village is the one I yeah. didn't, didn't care for yeah so it's you know village and then it's lady in the water and then the happening and then he made avatar Last avatar uh, or, or Last Last Airbender, Airbender, and then after earth like 
and then it was pretty rough. But then he made the visit, which wasn't bad. So like it, but that's the thing is looking back, if like looking at an entire body of work, um, I'd be interested to see like if those original scripts are as good as we remember them to be, uh, or if the script for the village or the happening or lady in the water are as negative as we think they are, hmm. uh, or, or as bad as we think they are. So I think it'd be interesting to look back now that we have a very large sample size of, of films for him. But anyway, all right. Um, I have forgotten how we got on Demna Chamo, so yeah. I'm going to move on to the next, uh, the, the second Ingmar Bergman film I watched, which is a classic that I had never seen. Um, it's 1957's Wild Strawberries. Mm. Have you seen it? Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did like. I kind of had a bit of wondering, like, with some of the, I don't know if they're flashbacks because there's like flashbacks to or memories of scenes that the character wasn't in. So like, yeah, I don't know if, are they supposed to be what he imagined? That's how imagined I imagined happened. That's how I took it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that wasn't, that's not a complaint. It was just something that I, uh, was unsure of when I was watching the movie of how, how to interpret, uh, how to interpret those. But, um, uh, we, you know, we talked on the last movie journal about, Car- uh, uh, Carol Reed and just, there are there are some films from you know like the pre nineteen seventies where it helps to have context of other films of that era to understand mm-hmm. style you know yeah but Carol Reed and Ingmar Bergman are completely they're singular they they work according to their own rules yeah. and so it, it their movies are truly timeless mm-hmm. um, there are um, there are, I don't want to call them tricks. There are, uh, techniques employed that don't seem to either be part of, or even really predate trends. They just seem like what a fantastic idea. Um, yeah. Bergman is almost like a genre in himself. He's one of those, he's one of those, and I haven't even seen that many of his films, but even I know at this point that he's just going to do things his way. It does. He's, he's obviously going to be influenced by other films and other art forms. Of course he is. Everybody is. But, uh, but yeah, he just is committed to whatever that film is going to be and whatever he wants to do with it and let the chips fall where they may. And he's somebody that if you like, I I don't know how you would classify him. Like I know that uh, our friend Josh long Mm -hmm. is a big fan of Bergman. Uh, and aside from just like I guess the concept of being Swedish and like, but I, and and the idea it's like oh yeah it's a really dreary kind of place. But the whole reason we think that is because of Bergman uh, and and the films that he makes, which again can also be kind of funny and surprisingly yeah. humanistic, while also being, for lack of a better term, dour. Like he just is completely his own thing. You're right. Um. There's a there's a moment uh, that that blew me away. It's such a small um, technique, I guess. There's a part when uh, so the lead played by Victor Sjöström. Mm-hmm. The I can't. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name yeah. right, but the guy who directed the Phantom Carriage. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in the passenger seat. His daughter-in-law is in the driver's seat, and they're parked. And it's a sunny day, mm-hmm. and she is telling him a story about 
her husband, his mm-hmm. son. And so it cuts that flashback, it, which takes place in the same car, mm-hmm. same position, she in the driver's seat, uh, but at this point, the son right. in the passenger seat, but it's raining. They have this huge argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it does a thing where it, establish- it gets a sort of rhythm of back and forth, and it cuts from him, and the next shot that should be back to her is back to her, but it's, you know, in the it's back to the right. sun. But it's not just that. There's a thing that he does that is a small move that is so brilliant is that last back and forth, that last going to the her husband, Victor mm-hmm. Jolson's son, he pushes in on that shot, which makes that... It, it makes that cut even more, like, jarring isn't even the right word. It makes it more Im- impactful because yes. it's it seems like it's leading up to something, and in a way it is. It's just not leading up to what you thought it was going to. It's not leading up mm-hmm. to the culmination of this argument. It's leading up to, like, oh, shit, like, nothing's changed. Like, they didn't, yeah. even though I know they didn't, like, hash everything out in that argument and they still haven't talked in months at this point. Right. Uh, that that little move to like build up to something and then remind you uh, of where you were when the scene started, yeah. uh, it blew me away. Um, and the, yeah, there's all kinds of great stuff like that. I remember when I saw it, like everything about it about the story seems very straightforward, and it feels like you could do it in a supernatural way. Yeah, I guess I should say for those who don't know the story, uh, Victor Jolson <laughs> plays um, a doctor who is being honored at a university in mm-hmm. his old hometown. He lives in Stockholm. His hometown is Lund. Um, and uh, so he decides, last minute he was supposed to fly, he decides last minute to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to, uh, So he spends all day driving with his daughter-in-law and then eventually some a number of hitchhikers that he, that mm-hmm. he picks up. Um, and over the course of this day, there are lots of discussions about all sorts of things but also lots of flashbacks or i guess memories but not really memories imaginings right exactly like it's in many ways you could just say it's a straightforward war uh road movie Uh um at least that's what it is on paper but bergman is not totally interested in just depicting this as is because this is a journey into the character's past and so it's treated like like past and present are all happening at once because for that character, of course they are. But then Mm -hmm. it's not even necessarily the past. It's his perception or his uh, assumption of the past, which is something that I just find so fascinating. Yeah. Um, I also find it fascinating that it used to be so normal for people to fall in love with and marry their cousins, which is a huge plot point that he was in love with his cousin mm-hmm. and she married his brother instead. That's a huge part of the flashback. And it's just yeah. like, it's not remarkable that they're cousins. That's apparently just how right. things went. Yeah. She simply married her other cousin. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, all right. What's next for you? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, this is, uh, sorry. It's another rewatch. This, uh, for for Fourth of July, um, Jen and I were going to watch something, and often we wind up watching Jaws. But this time we wanted to do something a little bit different, so we rewatched Edge of Tomorrow. Okay, you've seen it, yeah? Uh, it'd been a while since we since since I had watched. It. I saw it twice in the theater, um, and it is. I mean, I always had an appreciation for the cleverness of it and the humor of it, <laughs> but what you don't realize is that movies like this, I mean obviously movies like Memento and Groundhog Day and that sort of thing where it it repeats certain things 
it needs to be like spot on from a structural standpoint, but you also realize that the filmmaking needs to be there as well. Mm-hmm. You can't just shoot things in a straightforward way. You have to shoot it so that visually you, the audience remember something the second time you see it, mm-hmm. you know, immediately like, Oh wait, this is the same thing. It's not different. Like this isn't a different day that we were going back to this exact moment. Like for example, early on in the film, Tom Cruise is asleep on a uh, on a plane or a, a helicopter, and his hat is over his eye in a very specific way. And then, much much later in the film, we go back to that moment, and it's only the second time we've seen it. And there's easily an hour or more between those, mm-hmm. but we immediately know exactly where we are because that image needed to be visually like burned into our brain and it's not a, an image that in the moment you realize is so important and you don't even realize it's being imprinted upon mm-hmm. you until later when it just comes rushing right back and you don't even have to question it like in order for the audience to understand what is happening as quickly as possible it's not just you you can't just be organized from a script standpoint like you need a strong visual sense and the performances need to be spot on in a very specific way. Lines need to be delivered in a very specific way so that you remember them immediately and you realize what's happening the moment it starts happening. And so it's, it really is a, a marvelous film in a lot of ways. It's so entertaining, uh, great performances all around. And I just, uh, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. And it, and it definitely bears, Multiple rewatches. Yeah, well, I'm sure that movie would. I only saw it the once, so I should see it again. Good stuff. Um, so I can tell you at this point, I am just going to barrel through all the way to the end of my list because the next one on my list is your third movie. Oh, all right. Uh, which is Stefano Salima's Sicario, Day of the Soldado. Day of the Soldado. Um, and uh, you saw this one too. Mm. I hated it. Okay. I, I thought it was terrible. Um, I, I think, uh, I mean, I'm. Uh, what's the what's the writer's name? Taylor Sheridan. Taylor Sheridan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think I'm on the fence about him anyway. It seems to be hit and miss. I like. Uh, I really mostly miss. I like Hell or High Water. Yeah. And then uh, didn't like Wind River or uh, didn't really like the first Sicario. Um, I feel like there's another one I'm missing somewhere. I think so too. Yeah. Uh, now I can't remember. But in any case. Um, what I mean, the only thing that really worked about Sicario is, uh, for me at least, is how how queasy it was about confronting the amorality of Josh Brolin and 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 that and uh, and to some extent, I guess Benicio del Toro, who might be he might be more immoral than amoral, um, but that only works because of Emily Blunt's character and. Um, no, we said them all. Okay. Here you don't have Emily Blunt's character, mm-hmm. and so Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro are kind of our leads, and I think like it's such a weird. It's not necessarily uh, you know maybe this could have worked in some some other way, um, but uh, the idea of taking someone that I found to be monstrous mm-hmm. in the first movie, Benicio del Toro, yeah. Um, 
no matter how motivated he is by legitimate grief, yeah. um, the things he does are not not forgivable yeah. <laughs> to me. Uh, and for him to suddenly be um, the not good guy, but the protagonist at least, right. um, there's no there's no foothold, and so the movie just sort of uh, spins off into its own bullshit. Uh, and I don't know, uh, I, I, I lost interest definitely. Mm-hmm. I think, um, obviously you don't have, uh, Denny, uh, Villeneuve or, um, Roger Deakins, mm. uh, this time around. And, and so everything just seemed to, uh, dissipate into this morass of, uh, tough posturing, I think to me. Okay. So I liked it more than you did. It's still a mess uh, in a lot of ways. Certainly narratively, it seems to like it doesn't have any particular focus or any real direction. And even when late late in the movie, it sort of stumbles upon this thing where it's like, oh, now it's going to be Benicio Del Toro versus Josh Brolin. And and suddenly I was like sitting up. I was like, that's interesting. And then, nope. (laughs) Yeah. Although Uh, it didn't really follow through on that. Well, and there's actually an interesting moment there. Um, I'll try to be spoiler free here, but uh, there's a moment where something happens to Benicio Del Toro and then you realize that Josh Brolin was watching the whole time and saw that happen. And I feel like that's actually a, a... somewhat of a, for lack of a better term, powerful revelation. Um, Except I don't buy that Josh Brolin cares. I oh, never, see, I do. I, I actually I, did. Uh, I don't buy that they're friends. I think that, well, they're as close to friends as they get. I think there's uh, a certain degree of prof- professional respect, and I think there's something to be said for they've been through enough missions together, and they have enough of an understanding of one another, and it could also be a, a resistance to be against one another might come from the the fact that like wow we are both very expendable here uh and so so i think but that's the thing so narratively it's a mess but uh i think the i'm not even necessarily going to say the characters i think the the performances are very very good josh brolin is consistently one of the most interesting actors uh working today like he's someone that whether he's thanos or Uh this character um there's just something about the way he carries himself with like complete confidence, but you know that there's something underneath that the character just cannot afford to deal with because he's got something he needs to do. In fact, that's actually a pretty common thing here. Like cable Thanos, this character, like all of them have a very clear one could say monstrous goal that maybe they're not super thrilled with, but they cannot even they cannot deal with that right now mm-hmm. because their goal is bigger than they are, and so so I like I like his performance. I really like Benicio del Toro's performance, even though he's playing a, a, a pretty terrible guy. Um, there's a sequence where they come across a farmer that actually seemed very Frankenstein esque to me. Yeah, um, but it also felt forced. No question I about think. it. Except that I think his performance sells it. There's a moment okay. where it's it's. as telegraphed as hell where he's talking to and where he's talking to this farmer and the farmer is deaf. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out Benicio del Toro knows sign language because his daughter was deaf. But the moment when he says she was, yeah, he just does a little gesture and the, the look on his face and the way he makes that gesture, it was to me very impactful and it actually transcends the obviousness 
of that sequence. And so I do think that it the film is a, is an argument for actors being able to elevate material and I think the lack of moral compass I think that is on purpose. I think, you know, what's what happened between 19, between 2015 and now. Mm-hmm. Especially in regards to Mexico. Yeah, but do you think does this does this um does this screenplay reflect any of that? I don't think it does. I think it. Ref- I think it reflects the chaos of it. I think it reflects. I don't think it's about this. I don't think it's about like the Trump administration's attitude towards Mexico. I think it is about like we are just going to do what we're going to do at this point. We have run out of people saying, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't," and we're just going to keep going forward with absolute confidence, um, even though, like I said, it lacks focus. Maybe that's on purpose. I still think it's a flaw. But, um, but yeah, so it's a film that I, I'm not sure if I'd go so far as say I enjoyed there's, I see a lot of what they're doing and I think they are doing it on purpose, but, and it's, and it's, yeah, it's not as good as, as the first one because it lacks some of the, I won't say polish, but I mean, Roger Deakins has such a, yeah, like I think his cinematography could actually have brought form to this film, which mm-hmm. is formless. Yeah, and I, uh, I think this one made me like the first one better. Sure. Because you know that saying that, like, um, I can't remember how the exact saying goes or who said it, but basically, like, there's no such thing as an anti-war film because mm-hmm. by making war a war film, you're glorifying yeah. it. I think the first Sicario maybe comes a lot closer to depicting these things without glorifying them, whereas sure. I think... By treating it kind of as a horror movie. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Whereas I think Stefano, Stefano Salima, however he feels, like it, in our reintroduction of Josh Brolin in this movie, he does some horrible things, but I think yeah. Stefano Salima is unable to resist making him seem kind of like Jack Bauer. Whereas, sure. whereas I think the first movie was more uh, at a, not judging necessarily, but more at a moral distance. Yeah. Um, from and, the character's actions. And I think I was, I think, again, I think it's, it's in the performance. I think, uh, yeah, the director is not, not that I necessarily want a director to telegraph these things, but at the same time, I think they can do things to very subtly suggest that we should not be on board with this. And I think somehow Josh Brolin finds a way to make this character completely confident and probably convinced in the righteousness of, uh, of the righteousness of his actions. But, but still convey to us that we need to feel kind of not great about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is not a a great movie. I'm, I would say it's not even very good. I think there are very good things about it, um, that I like quite a bit and it's almost, I like all the performances. I think that the girl does a a good job. I don't remember her name, but I think Uh, she's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Isabel Moner. That sounds, that sounds right. Uh, uh, maybe Isabella. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's there. It's not the first film. I think it's more than anything. I find it interesting that the film exists. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like how, how on earth, it, which leads me regardless of what I might think about Taylor Sheridan, the fact that he wrote it. Yeah. The first film made more money than people expected. And so maybe the studio wanted it, but I can't imagine it. The, them seeing franchise potential, which makes me believe that Taylor Sheridan felt he had more to say with this. Yeah, but it's not even really the same studio this time. Cause this is a Sony movie. The first one was Lionsgate. I think, I think so. Yeah. Um, um so yeah, I, I hate who knows? I know stuff like that. That's, because yeah. I don't care about stuff like that in theory, but because You're such an industry, Tony. Because I am dealing with 
publicists, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I just tend to uh, know that stuff. Um, but anyway, say, sorry, oh, we, could, la- we can move on. Last thing I'll say, uh, I'll have the last word because the actual last words of Sicario 2 are so stupid. <laughs> that actual last, the scene is stupid, and specifically the thing that is said at the very end. Yeah. Uh, and I won't give it away, but the word Sicario is actually said. Yeah. Uh, and not, I don't mean someone speaking Spanish and says Hitman, like someone is speaking in English yeah. and then says Sicario, and it felt like, oh. And, like, the film ends with a door shutting. Like, yeah, we've all seen The Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> and because we've all seen it, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know what? I'll, I, I will say this, uh, speaking in broad terms. What happens to... I said be- I was getting the last word. No, go ahead. Well, sorry. <laughs> uh, this is one of my four. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, what happens to Benicio del Toro, as much as I enjoy watching him as a, as a character, what happens to him if that had stuck... I think I oh, probably I, I think I would have had more respect for the film. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right. Next up, I uh, was very excited to go to the Billy Wilder Theater at the Hammer Museum to see a 35 millimeter screening of Ernst Lubitsch's 1926 silent film. So this is Paris with, okay. with live piano accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so great this movie, um, and also I knew. I knew I'd made you, you know, you make the right movie going decision in Los Angeles when Peter Bogdanovich is there. Sure. <laughs> and Peter, it was like, this was the day, um, this was actually the day that we recorded the, uh, the, the, um, Milos Forman episode. Oh, okay. It was that night. Yeah. Um, so it was super, super hot. Even in Westwood on the other side of the hill, it was still super hot. And the line for tickets is outside at mm-hmm. the, at the Hammer Museum, at the Billy Walter Theater. Um, and Peter Bogdanovich was right behind me for a second. And then apparently was like, Hey, I'm a hundred years old and I'm Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Let's stay in this line. And he just, he just yeah. walked in. Uh, his um, ass got soaked with sweat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. I was talking to our friend Jake Bart about it. He also made, uh, and he said he must've been wearing his power ascot. Um, uh, did you ever, you have not watched documentary now, right? Uh, no, I never okay. have. they, there's a two-parter that's based very much on uh, the kid stays in the picture, uh-huh. and uh, there's and they have interviews with like actual people, um, and one is with Peter Bogdanovich who said like he goes, he's like I made a bet with so and so, you know, many years ago, the main character like uh, many years ago that like and if I won, then he would have to do this film, and if he won, I would have to wear an ascot for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyway, so this is Paris is, uh, the story is clearly a pre-code movie because it's the story of two, uh, society, um, uh, couples in Paris who are constantly lying to their spouses because they all want to cheat on each other with each other. Uh, and so it's mostly just a sort of farcical, like four different people all trying to get away with lies. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Oh, and that reminds me, there's also something, you don't see this very often um, in in silent comedies where, like, the use or not use of intertitles is part of the joke. Oh, okay, yeah. So, like, or there's, there's one, there's a joke um, uh, where he says the the uh the husband is sick of like he's trying to get away with something he's like just let me go to bed and he says let me lie in peace but in the intertitle the word lie 
is italicized to say he's yeah. saying he's saying two things yeah. uh, at once. But then there's another bit where he's talking to the woman across. Uh, he like runs into an old like an old flame. He's married now. He runs into an old flame who happens to be the woman across the street who's married to someone else now, and they're like reminiscing about old times. And then she. And so there's like talking, talking in the intertitles. And then she just starts talking about this memory and he's like, clearly doesn't remember it. And she keeps going. And so it's part of the joke is that it goes so long mm-hmm. without an intertitle and then never actually shows what she said. And then he speaks and it's like, um, are you sure that was me or something like that? <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it, that's a, a really inventive stuff. Um, I'm not Lubitsch seems like the type that would do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a couple, uh, Natalie went with me and she pointed out there's, um, she was like, it's weird. There's only a couple of like, uh, uh, I don't know what, I can't remember what, t- what term she used, but like, uh, surrealist. Yeah. She, I think she said surrealist mm-hmm. things. Cause there's one part where he is, that's he's lying in peace. He's lying. <laughs> he's, he's, he's in bed. And he realizes that he left his cane at the other woman's house. And so this cane is suddenly like going to like tear down all his lies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so he has this dream where the cane is floating in air above his head while he's laying in bed and keeps poking him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another part where the same guy gets like told off by his wife and then uh, it's a camera trick. He physically shrinks down in size as she's yelling at him. Um, it's really cool. Wow. Uh, the movie is, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's so much fun. The, uh, the person who introduced it, uh, jokingly referred to it as a silent musical because it has like big set pieces. There's a part mm-hmm. where he, um, the one of the you know two of the non-couples who are together yeah. uh go to a ball and there's a big like charleston competition so there's a whole part of people just dancing in charleston um hmm. uh, uh i forget oh and the last thing i was gonna say another thing i was laughing about with natalie was um uh how how well people dress just like all the time yeah you know and like so he's going to a ball this guy is dressed better than most people you see at like award shows now yeah but he needs to change into his ball <laughs> like his outfit to go to the ball yeah. he's not fit for the ball because he's just wearing you know mm. he's got a a vest with a pattern on it and that's not something you would wear when you go to the ball uh you need tails and a white tie yeah um yeah so it's called so this is paris it's so much fun um uh, next up, I won't talk too much about this one because I want to tell you to go listen to a podcast called no excuses, which I was on. Uh, the point of the podcast is to, um, watch, uh, blind spots, mm-hmm. things you've never seen that are a uh, big deal. To, and usually one of the, so one of the, it's two hosts. One of them it picks a favorite movie. The other one hasn't seen. And so, uh, uh, Mike, uh, this guy, Mike shut that I know from, uh, seeing him at Sundance. He's a huge Bob Fosse fan. And he wanted to make his co-host watch all that jazz. I'd never seen it. Um, so I bought it <laughs> because it's impossible to find anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but the Barnes and Noble Criterion sale was going on. So oh, there you uh, go. I happened to, so I got it for, you know, half off. Um, uh, and have you seen all that jazz? Many, many, many years ago. Okay. Um, it's really good. Mm. I don't think it's great because it is, you know, autobiographical and as such sort of necessarily a little self-indulgent. Yeah. And it's a little bit self-aggrandizing, although it ends up turning a corner where it be, it becomes n- not that it, in such a way that in retrospect, maybe it wasn't the whole time. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It's hard, uh, hard to explain, I guess. But um, you can hear us talk about it on the No Excuses podcast. 
Um, but I, I liked it quite a bit. I, all, I only the only person I knew who was in it is Roy Scheider. I did not know, um, the big like supporting cast of bit players like Wallace Shawn and Max Wright and John Lithgow mm-hmm. and Ben Vereen, who's awesome. Um, and yeah, there's probably a few others, but, uh, yeah, it's a fun, uh, funny movie that seems that's, um, I think has a lot of, uh, we've seen a lot of influence that I hadn't realized. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, the, he, his, uh, the character is named, uh, is it Joe Gideon? Something Gideon. I think it's Joe Gideon. Yeah. Um, his morning routine is was so clearly an influence on Requiem for a Dream. Oh yeah, um, uh, and yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like that. It's a really, really good movie. I'm glad I bought. The, I'm not going to return, even though I kept the receipt just in case. <laughs> I'm not going to return the Blu-ray. Uh, it's staying on my shelf uh, right after all that heaven allows. Um, all right, next up, uh, I watched the uh, uh for the you know for the monday movie which is a thing mm-hmm. that i either write every week or repurpose uh, yeah. existing things every week because i've been so busy lately yeah. but there I did, are times when i'm surprised to see myself yeah that you wrote a no, yeah like, this oh. week josh josh did one he had yeah. no idea it was coming um but no i i recently i think actually wrote um a monday movie for the website about um the Frederick March, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, mm. but I'd never seen the 1920, uh, 1920, uh, silent version, mm-hmm. um, starring John Barrymore. Um, it's not as good as the Frederick March one, but John Barrymore is great. It's a great, uh, silent performance. Um, and he, he sort of, he becomes Hyde without, tricks he just sort of becomes you know you can see that he's a stage actor that he can like he can he can do these things it's it's um uh that's that's really impressive uh i but i do think it falls short i mean part uh, part of um what makes the frederick march one and and the best versions of jekyll and hyde so powerful is jekyll's jekyll's relationship with his fiance Mm -hmm. and then hyde's relationship quote unquote with the dancer which is yeah. you know they're both emotional and tragic and uh, and disturbing in their own ways this one i think is a little too leaning on the like good versus evil lives inside each man like that's right. sort of like more i think frankly kind of more superficial philosophizing of the mm-hmm. story um and short uh, short shrifts the relation relationship or relational aspect yeah. of uh, of of what this does to uh, to Jekyll's life. So, um, I'm glad I watched it. Uh, but, uh, I will definitely go on preferring the Frederick Marx version. Um, okay. Next up, watch the newish movie. It's in theaters. A very, very few. It's in one theater in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know if it still is, uh, by the time you're hearing this, it might've had its last showing tonight. Cause it's Thursday night. Uh, I watched, uh, you would dig this movie, by the way, okay. Tyler. I watched an Indonesian movie called Marlena the Murderer in four acts. All right, and it is I'm a already. it is a modern day Indonesian western that is <laughs> because it takes place in rural Indonesia. People okay. ride motorcycles or they take buses, which is sort of like a stagecoach. Mm-hmm. It's everything about it is a western. The music is western. It looks like a western, except there's you know. A, you know there's a, a cell phone or two right. but it's very much a western modern day indonesian western that is also a twist on the rape revenge subgenre okay. 
Um, basically, I'll give I'll give just the because I don't want to get give away where the movie goes. So I'll just give very, the very early premise of the movie, which is that there's this woman, Marlena. Um, she's not yet a murderer, um, uh, but her husband has died. Uh, she's a farmer's wife. Um, her husband has died so recently that his corpse is still in the house. Oh my! Um, and a band of outlaws shows up and is like. We're going to take uh, all of your livestock. We're going to take any cash you happen to have in the house. And then all seven of us are going to take turns raping you. It's very straightforward. And it's like, but first you have to cook us dinner. Like, it's very disturbing and upsetting. Um, But, uh, yeah, she um, doesn't necessarily let all of that happen in that order. Um, And then uh, that's why I say it's a twist on the rape revenge movie. Because usually the rape rape revenge thing is there's a brutal rape. And then the rest of the movie is her killing the guys who raped her. This the structure is very different here. Um, Most of it would be considered aftermath, but Mm -hmm. uh, really just becomes its own story. Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's really terrific. It's also, I, I think it's very much a genre film. But also, like a lot of genre films, it's very political in yeah. um, uh, I would say an understated way, but I think it has a lot to say about um, about Indonesia's economy, what it's like for poor people, what it's like for women, what the how the how 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 the law works, how police uh, work. Um, it's a really, really uh, outstanding movie. And um, uh, I will point out um, that it, the the woman is or the director is a woman, which um, made me more willing to see it. I think I'm a little bit um, burnt out, maybe on movies about rape, but I think um, coming from a female perspective made me right. more interested in seeing it. It's still not any easier to watch because of I'm that. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, it's it's a really really good movie. Marlena the Murderer in four acts. If you get a chance to see it. I would definitely recommend seeing it. Uh, I give it four and a half stars on Letterboxd. Watch out. Um, what kept it from being five? Uh, I don't know. The, I, that it was... There's a, I think the, the, that the, the, there's a liminal space between four and a half and five that I can't put into words. Uh, yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, it's very rare for me to see a movie, that, whether it be older or newer, that I will automatically give five stars to. Yeah. All right, well, the next one I gave one star to. Watch out. But you'll be able to talk about this one because you reviewed it for the website six years ago, I think. This okay. is uh, Alex Kurtman, Kurtzman's People Like Us, starring Chris Pine and Elizabeth Banks and Olivia Wilde and Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay. <laughs> you don't remember this? You, you, I remember you not liking it, as I recall, I think. Uh, um, yeah, I re- actually read it for you. You didn't like it. Okay. Um, oh, I think you liked yes. it more than I did. Yes, I hated yes. it. Okay. But yeah, uh, Chris Chris Pine plays a guy uh, whose father that he hasn't talked to in years because mm-hmm. they had a bad relationship dies, and um, in the weeding of the weeding of the rill, no, the reading of the will, uh, he finds you gotta out get that rill white out, right out of there. See, and I said white. Okay, sorry. Uh, go on. He finds out that his dad had essentially another family mm-hmm. uh, that he cut out of his life, yeah. uh, and so. Chris Pine has a sister played by Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. She has a son, Chris Pine's nephew. Yes. Okay. Oh, it's coming back to me now. Yeah. And here's, here's the thing. I, uh, part of the reason I wanted to watch it is cause I like Chris Pine and I like Michelle Pfeiffer and I feel like I hadn't seen very much yeah. and seen Michelle Pfeiffer. And I mean, obviously recently she's been in more stuff. Um, but I've been as not a Star Trek guy. I've been wanting to see more Chris Pine stuff right. cause he's so good in hell or high water. I thought he was really good in a wrinkle in time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
um, I also cried when Common performed Glory at the Oscars, uh, <laughs> just like Chris Pine. So I felt the kinship. That was the main reason I was interested to see it. Um, but man, it just it lost me so early on because of the fact that when he meets Elizabeth Banks the first time, he doesn't tell her who he is, and then the whole horribly contrived fulcrum of the entire movie is that he's lying to her and when is she going to find out like why couldn't you make a secret and lies type movie where they find out this thing early on and then that's the drama right yeah like it uh, seems like your family thing yeah does that yeah it seems like why are you putting off you're intentionally avoiding the (laughs) potentially more uh, um, fruitful conflict, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and and drama here in favor of this bullshit sc- screenwriter's contrivance. That's exactly uh, what it is. Yes, and it it just drove me crazy the whole movie. Uh, I I couldn't uh, I, I I couldn't get past it. I will say, unlike. Not that this is a similar movie, but we were just because we were talking about it, I think on a recent movie journal, the movie Passengers, mm-hmm. which is a movie that also has someone do something bad and then never uh, addresses it really or never, yeah. you know, makes them uh, never has a reckoning. I will say at least this one, when Elizabeth Banks finally does find out, yeah. the movie takes it seriously. Both both Chris Pines and Elizabeth Banks, Elizabeth Banks play it really well, yeah. and it actually does feel like yeah, that's how you would react. Like she's furious and humiliated, uh, uh, about this. Yeah. Because he has something on her. I mean, not, not in that way, but like they, he has the power in the relationship because he knows the full situation. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, just imagine a situation where they were equals and they're just trying to make sense of this. Um, Looking at my review here in my first paragraph, I say, but in the end, it's all in service of a movie of a movie that I mostly forgot about the moment it was over. It would appear <laughs> That's that true. was true. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Moving on. I watched, um, yeah, I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember a few, two or three movie journals ago. I talked about seeing some, uh, animated films by Czech animator, Yuri Trinka, um, mm-hmm. including his, a midsummer night's dream, which is brilliant. Um, I watched another one of his uh, from 1949 called The Emperor's Nightingale, okay. which the uh, the bookend is live action. It's about a boy, a rich boy, who's uh, not really allowed to go out and play with others. He has to stay in. He has all these toys, and uh, his parents are never there. His parents uh, send him toys from their constant trips abroad. Mm-hmm. So he lives with the staff, I guess, of his mansion and plays with his toys, and he gets this new toy that's like a wind-up nightingale, and then he like falls asleep and has this whole dream about all of his toys interacting and mm-hmm. having like a kingdom and the nightingale sort of like... Uh, represents something new and gets the king to go outside it's no. the 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 allegory here is not a you know a deep one yeah <laughs> um uh and uh but yeah it's much like the other yuri trinka stuff i've seen so far it's really charming animation this one is uh narrated by the aforementioned boris karloff hey um at least for the english language <laughs> version which is mm-hmm. what i watched uh it's more stop motion than um, 
than a Midsummer Night's Dream. Although that was uh, that was a lot of stop motion too, but this one feels feels more, I guess, uh, herky jerky. Is what mm-hmm. I meant. Um, uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's really charming and it's a good time. I don't know. All We're right. getting near to the end uh, here, and I can't uh, can't go all night. But I'm very excited to talk about the next movie because it's out this weekend. Okay, and it really took me by surprise. And that's Skyscraper. Okay, starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson, um, my girlfriend Nev Campbell, and <laughs> directed by Ross and Marshall Thurber, who made Dodgeball, um, but also Central Intelligence, which is uh, oh sure. The, the the Dwayne Johnson movie that he made and um yeah I was really like I was like I guess I'm going to see this movie like I wasn't <laughs> I was like I'm gonna review it for the site but I, I wasn't excited to see it. maybe they like benefited from lowered expectations um it's not perfect by any t- in any means um but it's a really solid kind of throwback action movie except it's also very of the moment in some ways in terms of the CGI it takes mm-hmm. place in a um ridiculously tall building that's all cgi because there's no building in the world this tall mm-hmm. that's the point it's the new tallest building in the world it's in hong kong um i was in hong kong and they do have a lot of very tall buildings it's very strange um, it's a very vertical city uh that's that's why ross and marshall thurber said he wanted to set it there oh, okay. not because china is the biggest box office market in the <laughs> in, 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 in the world and having half of your cast be chinese probably helps sure. i'm sure that wasn't it is because sure. hong kong is such a vertical city right um anyway uh so yeah in terms of yeah the the, the science fiction this is a this is a uh, a building that has a 30-story park in the middle of it with like a waterfall oh, and neat. stuff. Um, so it kind of has that like very modern sci-fi thing, but it also felt modern in terms of, so the, the premise and the type of action is throwback, but the type of man that the, the type of masculinity that we're seeing from Dwayne Johnson is slightly different than what we would expect from your Bruce Willis, Sylvester Stallone type right. of, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger type of eighties, you know, uh, one man kills everybody action, action movies. Um, he's, uh, uh, he has gray in his beard, which is not something you see from the rock very often. No. I should stop saying the rock. He goes by Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Um, and I really that's do have not, a lot of respect. That's not as fun to uh, say. Yeah. Though. Um, uh, and there's more of, there's more time with him and his wife and kids at the beginning, sort of like really setting up him as a dad and a family man, you know, as opposed to just like, uh, you know, in a lot of these movies, the the kid or the wife is just the 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 thing to rescue. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, here it's it's a it's not not like deeply fleshed out. It's not wild strawberries or anything. Yeah. But um, it, the movie takes time to really to, to sink in that he really loves his family yeah. and is a good dad. Um, I want to see a hybrid of skyscraper and wild strawberries <laughs> and see how that would work out. Yeah. Like while he's like <laughs> killing henchmen with his prosthetic leg, yeah. which is the thing. Okay. Um, he's also flashing back to, uh, his childhood and yeah. lolling in the grass with his attractive cousin. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, shit. Um, anyway, uh, but also another thing I didn't expect, and I should, I, maybe this is part of why I like the movie so much. Cause I said, as I, as I implied, I love Nev Campbell and mm-hmm. always have. Um, 
this is not just a wife role. She's yeah. a major participant in, in the story, major participant in solving what's going on with the bad guys. Uh, she, her character is, uh, is a veteran as well. They're both military veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she actually gets some, a couple of, uh, action sequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, so that all that is very refreshing, but really the main reason I liked it is because it's a big fun action movie that manages to not be, I mean, in terms of plot, it's predictable, very predictable, but in terms of, uh, action mechanics, um, it keeps you, uh, it keeps you engaged. It keeps raising the stakes. It, it keeps coming up with new set pieces or new things. Like I said, he has a prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. So the idea that that, um, plays into either a fight scene or him dangling off the edge of the building, you yeah. know, uh, is, is fun. Um, you've also got, I, I'm not super like afraid of heights, but I, there are definitely parts of this movie where my palms got sweaty and I kind of had to like yeah. look away from the screen for a second to like ground myself, <laughs> you know? Um, which, the last time that happened in a movie is of all things tower heist. Um, okay. But that's also when I saw it in a theater, which probably sure makes it, you know, makes the vertigo greater. Uh, and there's a scene where there's a car hanging off the edge of the building. And then Matthew Broderick is hanging onto the bumper of the car. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting very sweaty, sweaty palmed in tower heist as well. So, uh, mission impossible Four, uh, oh, which I didn't pretty see. rough in um, that regard. Uh, and that's for real, right? Yeah. Yeah, that that would that might be too much for me. Yeah. Maybe that's why I didn't see it. Uh but yeah, it's uh, it's it's big fun and uh uh Noah Taylor's in it too. Uh yeah, right. being like the real slimy Noah Taylor. Nice. Um yeah. So uh Skyscraper, surprisingly good time uh, at the movies. Um all right, next up I rewatched I know I don't talk about rewatches very often, but I rewatched nineteen sixty seven's Valley of the Dolls. Okay. Um it uh it actually went so uh speaking of letterboxd i'd not i actually notched it up a half a star from two to two and a half all right <laughs> this time uh have you ever seen it no it's it's a lot of fun but it's also so it's it's we've we've talked about like melodrama being a like not being a bad word yeah this is the kind of thing people maybe are thinking of when they think of melodrama being a bad word okay. because it's just a series of unfortunate things happening to these three women. Um, it's super panicky about sixties, um, Hollywood culture and drugs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Patty Duke is just devouring the scenery. Um, there's, this will give you, uh, this will give you, uh, uh, an idea of the tone of the movie. There's a part of the end when she's hit rock bottom Mm -hmm. and, she's in the alley and she's calling out to her friend who isn't there. And then she calls out to her other friend who died. And then she calls out to her husband who left her. She's calling out to all these people. Her name is Neely. This should say she's calling out to all of these people that have left her. And then she calls out God. And then she calls out Neely. And then Neely like, says Neely multiple times and then breaks down in the alley. Um, that's the tone of the movie. Oh boy. Uh, but there is, there's a, there also is a sense of, uh, of, of fun to it. Um, it's the only movie I've ever seen Sharon Tate in. Mm-hmm. I know she made other movies, but, uh, this is the only one I've seen. Um, 
you've also got Lee Grant, uh, who's great. Um, it's yeah. So it's, it's big, soapy fun. And I think maybe part of the reason I, I'd only ever seen it on VHS before. So this was in HD and widescreen, mm. you know, and I think I got a better sense of the, of the, of the colors um, and the production design and stuff. So maybe that's why it uh, ticked up a half a star uh, for me. But uh, yeah, it probably won't be the last time in my life. I rewatch Valley of the dolls because it's a very fun movie. Um, moving on. Finally. Okay. I got two more, two more. Oh, that's exciting. Um, I saw a movie that comes out, I think next month. Uh, you're going to want to see it, Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the wife. Starring okay. Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Jonathan Price plays a uh, novelist who is being awarded the Nobel Prize, and Glenn Close plays his wife, and it takes place over the long weekend or wherever when they go to Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it starts him finding out that he's getting the Nobel Prize, but then most of the movie takes place in Stockholm. Um, and uh, they go along with their their son who's a struggling writer himself played by max irons jeremy irons son um who's uh who can currently be seen on the tv series condor the adaptation of three days of the condor all right um anyway uh uh, so the the three of them go and then also tagging along uninvited is a character played by christian slater who's a sort of opportunistic writer who wants to write a biography of jonathan price's character um, and Jonathan Price does not want him to write the autobiography or write the biography. Hmm. Um, but he's, uh, always at the edges sort of poking and prodding. And so most of the movie is just a series of conversations among these, you know, it's either Jonathan Price, Max Irons, it's Glenn Close and Jonathan Price, it's Glenn Close and Christian Slater. You know, hmm. it's mostly Glenn Close. It's called the wife. She's the, yeah. the star of the movie. Um, but, uh, I won't give away the movie's secrets, obviously, but it's, uh, terrific performances, all around um and uh also really it's uh, by a um i think a swedish director mm-hmm. um even though they didn't shoot in stockholm it takes place in shock in stockholm but the, like almost the entire movie is indoors even while i was watching it i was mm-hmm. like i bet they didn't go to stockholm so i looked it up atlanta uh no glasgow oh, all right. uh, or glasgow i'm not sure how you say that mm. um but uh, yeah, I don't want to say too much about it. But it's beautifully framed uh, and and shot and very handsomely appointed. Uh, and uh, uh, I thought, yeah, it's a, it's really good. The wife comes out next. Okay. Week. And then, oh, finally, I watched the movie. I couldn't even tell you why I watched this. Okay. But I've been meaning to for a long time because, as you know, and I think you agree with me as a big fan of The Shallows, I'm a big fan of Blake Lively. Okay. Um, going back to Gossip Girl, obviously you don't have that right. history with her, um, but I've always liked Blake Lively as an actress, and I think the only thing that kept me away from All I See Is You is that it's directed by Mark Forster, uh, mm. and I'm not a big fan of him. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe I need to give him a second chance because really liked All I See Is You. So the premise is um, Blake Lively plays a woman who was blinded in a car accident as a as a girl. Mm-hmm. Now she um, lives in Thailand with her husband played by Jason Clark and a doctor played by, uh, Danny Houston, hey, uh, right. has found out, has found out that he can do surgery to restore most of the vision in her, in one of her eyes. Hmm. So suddenly after 20 years or whatever, um, she's going to be able to see. Um, and so the Mark Forster definitely has a lot of fun with the visual 
sure. aspect of, of the movie, making it very uh, colorful and sometimes disorienting and sometimes very uh, almost otherworldly beautiful. I think it helps that it shoots in Bangkok, which is a very colorful uh, city. Um, but really, the the vision thing is really just a, a way in to where really this is a movie about a marriage and the fact that Jason Clark very much wants this thing for his wife, but once she gets it, she starts to change and he maybe starts to panic a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was, he's, he thinks like I was happy the way things were, but she right. has new opportunities in life. She's, but she's not, like it'd be easy if it were just like oh she's falling out of love with him. It's not that she's changing, and he can't handle it. And really, it's just about. It just seems like a uh, uh, an allegory for something that happens over the course of a marriage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and and the insecurities that you might have um, when you assume you assume things about a person yeah. um, and have for years, and something changes. It doesn't mean they've fallen out of love with you, but that's maybe. I don't know. This speaks to some very strong personal fears that I have. I'm the kind of, kind of person yeah. who shows up at work every day, fearing I'm going to get fired that day. I tend to mm. always fear that my wife is going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, fall out of love with me. Like it's just a constant fear that I have. So the movie definitely affected me. Uh, and it's definitely very beautiful, um, to, to look at. It's the kind of movie that I think someone who maybe doesn't see a lot of art movies would describe as an art movie. But mm. I think people like us who do see a lot of art movies would be like, eh, it's a little unconventional, but it's not right. It's like on that line of, uh, uh of that sort of thing. I'll, I'll say I was initially bothered by the ending. I think it becomes a little too contrived. It becomes a little too melodramatic to mm-hmm. go back to that. But it's the kind of thing where it bothered me in the moment, but I can already tell as time moves on, I'm going to be less, I'm going to spend less time thinking about how it didn't stick the landing and more time thinking about how much I liked the rest of it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's my last movie today. Uh, and then you have a movie and then I'm going to talk real quickly about a TV okay. show. Uh, all I see is you. All right. Okay. So yeah, I saw Bo Burnham's eighth grade, um, which I was excited and reluctant to see, uh, as a comedian, uh, uh Bo Burnham is hit and miss. Uh, with me when he hits it's great uh, I think he has a very specific voice and a very specific point of view uh, when he misses it's when I think he is doing what I think it, what he thinks is expected of him mm-hmm. um, either way like sometimes he's I think he's most effective when he is sincere and I think he's least effective when he is doing a per, when he's like playing up a persona, um, and so either one of those could have come into eighth grade, which is a portrait of this thirteen-year-old girl at the end of her middle school, uh, her time in middle school, and she's about to go into uh, high school, and so it would have been very easy to play up the the goofiness of that time and look at it look at it like in retrospect and see like, Oh boy, uh, can you believe how, what we were all like in eighth grade? Um, mm-hmm. but thankfully he for, he forgoes that for the most part and, and approaches it sincerely. And the film transforms, uh, into something that I think is very special because, uh, thematically, 
it takes what we all are going to do, which is we look at this, we will compare it to our own experiences at that time in our lives and think like, like, oh man, the stuff that mattered to me then, it, it didn't matter at all. If only I knew that. So that is a, a, I think that's a very common and I also think very safe way of looking at the past. And what I like about the film is that eventually, without even really, without, uh, you know, trumpeting it or anything like that, it transitions into, as the character's starting to realize it, we're starting to realize that like, oh, wait a minute. What if, what if the stuff that's important to me now mm. is not that important? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not even that different than it was in mm. eighth grade. Maybe, maybe the scenery has changed a bit and maybe the details have changed, but what I wanted then is really not that different than what I want now. I mean, you were talking about with, uh, all I see is you touching on certain mm-hmm. things within you. I, I look back like so many others, including yourself. I look back on eighth grade as like the, the low point of my, uh, like time in school the next year. I, I mean, I had friends and stuff like that, but I was just like, I hated every, I hated everything about the way I looked. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was drowning in envy for everybody else. Cause everybody seemed like they had it together. Of course they didn't, course they did. but they yeah. seemed like they did. Um, and I didn't really, and I, and I felt like I wasn't really good at anything. Well, it turns out the stuff that I was good at is something that did not, it was stuff that didn't present itself until high school, which is to say like theater and, mm-hmm. you know, TV, uh, film stuff. Um, and so, but I look back on eighth grade and I'm like, Oh boy, that was really hard. And if you, and this film forces me to think about like, well, what was so hard about it? And as I listed, I realized like, well, in the, in a general sense and not even that general, it isn't any different than now. I still worry about being accepted by the people around me. I still kick my, you know, really punish myself when I let down the people that are close to me. I still am trying to figure out, it sounds generic to say like who I am, but more specifically, uh, struggle to value who I am. And even at age 36, I still have an idea of like, Oh, I wish I were cool. What the hell that means? I don't even know anymore. Uh, in eighth grade, I certainly had an idea yeah, and that was probably silly then too. But just this, this desire to be seen a certain way by people is still very much in me. And I don't necessarily, I won't say that everybody can relate to that, but they might be able to relate to different things within this one, this young girl's struggle. And so, you know, so that is, that's a story of plot and a story of structure. But of course the, the acting is wonderful all throughout. And this, this, uh, young girl, uh, Elsie Fisher plays the part just right. She could have gone to, she could have gone into like Napoleon dynamite territory or Juno and been mm-hmm. like overly stylized, but she can't have it be like Italian neo realism either. It needs to be somewhere in between because the character herself is constantly trying to posture a little bit. Right. And so it really is, it, it walks a tightrope and, and does it, I'd say masterfully. Um, one thing I'll say about something you said, cause I haven't seen the movie, but about being cool. I think sometimes platitudes become platitudes of cliches because become cliches because they're true. Mm-hmm. Um, you're as cool as you want to be. Cause you, 
everyone can decide for themselves what they think is right is cool yeah i mean so robert mitchman out of the past is obviously the definition of cool <laughs> and so I, i'm not that so i don't i you know you're cool i mean you smoke <laughs> <laughs> right that after that right you can do whatever you want with it but yeah you do have to <laughs> start uh, smoking cigarettes um i'm trying I'm, I'm not trying to quit but i'm I'm smoking less and less to the point uh, that like, I mean, I, not that you and I hang out really, but it used to be that we would record uh-huh. and then you, we would hang out while you smoked a cigarette. And now that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't think of you as a smoker anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most of my coworkers don't, which is good. Cause I never smoke uh, almost never, unless I'm having a really stressful day. Sure. Like I've never been the kind of like, cause I, you know, I like to, as Paul Stanley would say, have a drink of alcohol. Um, <laughs> But uh, I've never been the guy who's like stressed out and being like, oh, I need a drink. Like, yeah. I don't think like that, but I will sometimes if I'm having a really stressful day at work, I'll be like, I need to go smoke a cigarette, mm-hmm. um, which is really it's not even really about the cigarette. It's like I need to go stand outside for 10 yes. minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, moving on. You have something else to say about just uh, the, I, cigarettes? I do, no, no, no. Just about eighth grade. Like, I think in many ways, I feel like it's a good companion film to like Mean Creek. Oh, in that okay. Something that, that Roger Ebert said at the time was uh, that Mean Creek is rated R. I don't actually know what eighth grade is rated. If I had to guess, I'd say it's R because there is enough, th- there's enough profanity to make it that. And in a way, that's a shame because I do think 13 and 14 year olds would benefit greatly from seeing the film. But I think again it's it's almost a magic trick like it yeah, is R. it's specific and yet universal it's universal because it's specific mm-hmm. but i honestly believe that like i watched the movie and i got out of i i saw in this girl what i the stuff that i deal with but i have no doubt that if you were to watch it you would see the right. stuff that you deal with yeah and uh yeah it's it it is really a mm-hmm. a a fascinating film. And when I heard that Bo Burnham was directing a movie, like it was like, Oh geez, here we go. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see what he does next. All right. And, uh, finally on the TV tip, I won't spend too much time on glow season two okay. because I know you haven't watched it yet. And I imagine I haven't, I really want to, once you do, we'll probably have a, a bigger discussion about yeah. it. And also we've been going forever, but, um, I really loved it. I, I think it's probably even better than the first season. Oh wow. Um, even though, uh, I was kind of bummed that it's it's even less of an ensemble. Maybe the first season, like it's really Ruth, Debbie, and Sam yeah. heavy, um, with a couple exceptions. There's definitely Justine gets uh, uh, an episode. Uh, Tammy, uh, welfare queen, mm-hmm. uh, gets an episode. Um, uh, Arthi, uh, who plays Beirut, mm-hmm. or sorry. Sunita, Sunita something is the actress. The right. character is Arthi. Her character then yes. is Beirut. Um, she gets not a whole episode, but she gets some, some more stuff uh, as it goes on. And one of the fun things about having a show, the big cast is being able to um, pair up actors. Like, yeah. like you can be two, uh, two seasons deep and be like, Oh, I've never seen a scene. That's just Arthi and Sam. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that ends up, and there's a couple of those actually uh, at the end. Um, so, uh, but what I'll say overall is that, um, there might be no more humanistic show on television mm-hmm. than glow. Like it's, it's, 
it's it, not only is the movie not the, sorry, the show not only does the show have love for all of its characters it's impossible to watch the show and not have love for all of its all of its regular regular characters yeah. you know what i mean um even when like uh i mean I, i've liked obviously coming from a male point of view um i'm happy to see um a show that's so female but it's also the amount of attention given to the male characters on the show yeah. uh, is pretty incredible. Obviously Sam, um, the, the show loves him even when he can be really awful. Like he is early, early in the season. He spends a few episodes being just the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, Bash is a tragic <laughs> character and also yes. maybe the most consistently funny character. Yeah. There's a, I'm not even going to tell you there's a joke in the first episode that I like, it's one of those, like I need to pause because I'm laughing so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then he has other, when he, he gets in, there's more of the actual show in the season two, because the season one was just about leading up to the pilot. So there's the mm-hmm. actual show. So he becomes the announcer. And so I, there's other jokes that he has about, um, he's like, uh, cause there's one of the storylines is one of the wrestlers has their kid stolen, like kid kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and what is a mother without a child? Just a person. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's super funny, and you know, it's like a lot of comedies these days. It has heavy stuff in it, and, some, yeah. and a couple of these episodes really heavy stuff. But it never forgets that it's a comedy. There's yeah. laughs in every episode. Yeah, uh, great cast, great show. Uh, I am already. Uh, not only have I already said we're just going to rewatch season one and two uh, mm-hmm. because we it's we can't stand the wait for yeah. season three, which I don't even know if season three is official yet, but I can't imagine probably uh, it wouldn't. Yeah, um, I was bummed the Emmys came out today and something you and I predicted a year ago. Mark Maron overlooked. Yeah, but you know what? I took solace in the fact that what's the name Cameron Britton was nominated for guest actor for Mindhunter. Okay. Uh, yeah, you saw Mindhunter. Yeah, right? I did. I mean, like, yeah. it's a good show all around. But I mean, he is. Yeah, that's great. So special. But yeah, the with a huge cast, the only acting nomination I think for Glow was Betty Gilpin, who's she's great. Yeah. on the show. But, but I mean, I yeah, I think Allison Brie is marvelous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, yeah, you and I've spoken about Mark Maron quite a bit. Um, and yeah, it's it's I guess it's such a large ensemble. It's hard to know who to single out. But to me, it's like, well, Mark Maron is the guy. Yeah, like, if you're going to supporting, it's either him or or Bash. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. I'm drawing a blank on the actor's name. He was yeah. on Veronica Mars. Um, but yeah, those are the only two. Although there's more. There's a bit more of um, the 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 referee, the stuntman mm-hmm. husband in yeah. this season. Not enough that it would. Yeah, but of course this. I remember these Emmy nominations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like their marriage a lot. Yeah, Um, these Emmy nominations are only for season one. Even though season two is already premiered, only season one was eligible. Uh, But uh, yeah. So hang on, it just occurred to me. Okay. Uh, So I've been watching a lot of SNL, not like full episodes, but uh, sketches where I can, and and of the last few years, and uh, there's one that I they. I'm a sucker for SNL like game show things because they are so often effective. Uh-huh. And there was one from when Christoph Waltz hosted uh, a, a while ago, and the game show is called "What Have You Become?" And so he goes to each contestant. And he says, "Like, tell us about yourself." And so it's like, "Well, I, you know, I come from, 
you know, this and I, and this is what I do now. He's like, Oh, that's really wonderful. And it's Christoph Waltz like being his cheerful self. And he's like, he goes, all right, contestant Patrick, you, you know, you are a, a, a huge fan, a, a huge fan of uh, Katy Perry. So my que- your first question, what have you become? <laughs> and so then the person's like, well, and then like this piano music starts and they have like these moments of, of realization and it's uh, delightful. But then somebody throws it back at Christoph Waltz. Uh-huh. He goes, it's like, what have you become? He goes, he goes, a uh, game show, a uh, game show host, obviously. And then the piano music starts. He goes, but I didn't want to. <laughs> He's like, I wanted to be a dancer. And it's like, mama, please. I want to dance. No, you have to go to game show school. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. And uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for those like really... Uh, Dark ones, especially dark in the middle of something that's supposed to be very light and fun is uh, is delightful. So that's several years old at this point, but SNL uh, is still great. 